Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Well, good evening. Again, my name is Chad Balakian. For those of you that are new, again, welcome to you. Um, We have been going through the book of Titus this semester, slowly but surely and faithfully. We have been working our way through this wonderful little letter. And for several weeks now, we have been in chapter one. I think this is the sixth if I'm correct, lesson we've done just from chapter one. And tonight we do indeed close it off and embark on chapter two. So um, the Lord has been faithful. And we've really seen in the last several weeks how the truth, and all of our lessons have been geared around this, the truth governs the church. We have seen how it governs, secures, and protects the bride of Christ. Everything we have talked about has been about the church, about those who would uh, faithfully lead the church, the shepherds, and those who try to put harm towards the church, the false teachers. And we've really seen that that Paul has had one continuous flow of thought, word after word, sentence after sentence. It's all building on top of each other. It's all connected. It's like, like a link in a chain. If you were to pick up a chain at any point from any link, it's all coming up. That's, that's how Paul writes. That's how this letter is meant to be read. So again, we opened several weeks ago with how the truth leads to godly living, how the truth produces faithful disciples. It determines, the truth determines who is to lead the church and how are they, and how they are to act. The truth protects the church against false teachers. And that's what we looked at last week. We saw last week that there are three things that identify a false teacher. Last week, we saw this in verse 10. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. Rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers. Tonight, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into that middle term. Empty talker. It means a babbler. It means you speak and you kind of have eloquent things to say, but nothing really comes out of your mouth. You're not accomplishing anything. You just have a good smile on your face, and, but, but nothing's happening. That's dangerous. Not one person is closer to God after their message. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus says that the truth sanctifies. Isaiah 55, 11 says that the word of God goes out and it does not return void. It accomplishes God's purpose. It does something. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. The truth does something. It accomplishes something. Faithful preaching of the truth produces faithful people. Now, contrary 
last week, contrary to the false teachers, the truth faithfully taught is going to do something. It, the truth, if you will, the truth works. The truth works inward. The truth works in your inner man, in your inner person, and it also works outward. And that's our main idea tonight. The truth works inward. The truth works outward. Look with me. Verse 15. Titus chapter one to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their works, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. In chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Remember, we're talking about links in a chain here. It's all connected. Last week, we, we closed with how the, re, how the false teachers, verse 14, they reject the truth of God for man-made commandments. They do the opposite of Proverbs 3, verse 5. They lean on their own understanding, on man's wisdom, than on God. These people, they've forsaken divine revelation for human opinion. And before we are too quick to cast stones, we have to ask the question to ourselves, I was convicted when I thought about this. Where are you prone to do that in your life? In any situation, are you quicker to search God's word and pray or complain? Where is it easier to lean on your understanding than on the word of God? Find it, repent of it, kill it. Stand on the truth of God, on the wisdom of God in his word, and lean not on your own understanding. Don't turn to man-made myths. What hope do you have there? Now, the false teachers that were in view here, Paul says they were those of the circumcision. That was verse 10. In other words, they were the Jews. That's important, right? These were people, the Jews, who should have known better. God had given them the law. They should have known better. Additionally, at this point, the Jews, and during Paul's day, they had conjured up thousands of man-made rules and regulations, rules that would make you unclean for touching that, impure for eating this. These are the people Paul was addressing. The type of person that thinks... Is this us, by the way, that certain things you do is what makes you acceptable before God. He's addressing works-based righteousness. That's what he's doing. He's addressing works-based righteousness. And by the way, anything but the true Christian gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is works-based, a, a works-based system. Only in the gospel do we find that it is by grace alone. That's what scripture teaches. 
But now let's, let's look at this phrase, to the pure, all things are pure. The, the concept of purity in scripture, it's, it's massive. It's everywhere. It's important. But we're going to summarize it by saying this. God is, loves, and requires purity. God is, God loves, and God requires purity. In Psalm 24, David writes, Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh, and who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart. The New Testament agrees. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The common denominator, who can dwell with God? What what is it? A pure heart, a clean heart, which should raise alarm. To the pure, who's pure? Who is naturally pure before God? No one, that's the question. No one, not Paul, not Titus, not you, not I. No one is pure before God. I was watching an interview the other day about um, on, a, on a, a big celebrity that just recently passed away. In one of his final interviews, he said, oh, I'm good. I've always had faith in God. I was born with my faith. And I said, no, no, naturally we, we are not. Naturally we are born as God's enemies. No one is clean, but one, right? Jesus Christ, who first John chapter three says was without sin. Peter says in first Peter that he was the lamb without blemish or spot. That's our savior. And by the way, that savior, Titus 2.14 says, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, possession, zealous for good works. Look, friends, the good news of the gospel is that the God who requires purity provides purity in Jesus Christ. The God who requires purity provides it. I mean, contrary to the endless rules that the Jews had invented and contrary to their misunderstanding of the perfect law of God, purity has always been a work of God upon the heart. David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. What's he saying? Yes, by the way, Psalm 51, that, that's the Psalm David writes after he committed the sin with Bathsheba, adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So here David is saying, yes, I've sinned by committing adultery. I've sinned by murdering Uriah. But the ultimate problem is I need a clean heart because that's going to determine everything else. The inner man. The heart. Jesus says in Mark 7, what comes out of a man is what defiles him. What comes out of the heart. Your, your, your foul mouth, your, your lustful eyes, 
That's not what defile you in and of themselves. It shows you what's in your heart. And that's why David prays, give me a clean heart. Right, for the Jew, who cares if you follow that specific festival or eat that specific food or, or touch that specific thing or not touch it or, or pray this prayer or make this journey? None of that matters. That's not ultimately what matters. What matters is a clean heart before God. In Acts 10, Peter got a lesson in this. Peter is, sees the vision of all the animals coming out of heaven and, and the, the, the clean and the unclean animals. And God says in a vision to Peter, rise up three times, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, God, I can't do that. That's going to defile me. And God's response to Peter is, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Peter, that's not the problem. You eating that animal isn't what's going to defile you. What matters is your heart, Peter. What matters is your heart tonight. How is the truth working? And I want you to hear this word carefully. How's the truth working in you? What does it matter, right? If we do all the right things, but our heart is far from God. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does it matter if Trinity Community Church has all the right programs, but God does not have our hearts? At the end of Psalm 51, the psalm I just quoted, David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants. That's what every Old Testament sacrifice pointed us towards. That's what it produced, a broken heart. That must be the response, your response, my response, every Christian's response at the foot of the cross. A broken heart. I have sinned. I am impure. I deserve death. But this one on the cross, that one, the sinless one, the savior on that old rugged cross, he has committed no sin. He is pure. He is clean. I should be there. Our hearts are broken. Amazing love. How can it be that God, my savior should die for me? But to be clear, when Paul says all things are pure, it doesn't mean that you can live however you want. Because that's the temptation when we read that verse. It's not saying to those who are pure, live however you want. No, it's not saying that. Indeed, that's the opposite of what it's saying. Right? What it is saying is that you don't get to just, you don't, you don't get to justify sin just because you've been forgiven. What it's saying is that those with the mind of Christ, those who have been purified in the blood of Christ, everything else becomes pure. First Timothy says it this way everything created by God is good. Sleep is a good thing but it's your sinful heart that can turn it into laziness, right? Go down the line. Food is a good thing, right? But it's our sinful heart 
that can turn it into gluttony. Sexuality created by God is a good thing, but it's our sinful hearts that make it immorality. These are good things that are created by God for us to give glory to him. And to the one who is pure, to the one who has the mind of Christ, to the one who's been washed in the blood of the lamb, these things are not, these things can be used as they're intended to be to the glory of God, whether it be work or family or friends or school, whatever it might be, it can become a pure thing, a good thing, a thing we can give God glory in. And Paul, to cement his point, he switches to the negative. He says, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So the opposite is true, right? You're, you're, you're either pure or you're impure. It's black and white. You either have the mind of Christ or you, you don't. And first we're told here that such a person is defiled. The term means polluted, con- contaminated. The picture is, is, is a bloodied, stained, dirty towel, right? It's just stained. You're not going to use it for anything. It's useless. This type of person is so stained with the world, so in it, so polluted by it that he just reeks of it, right? It's like, a guy that works with sewage, he's gonna, you're gonna tell, right? He, if you work with sewage, you're gonna smell like you work with sewage. This type of person is defiled. But, but the problem is, not only is he defiled, he's unbelieving. He's an unbeliever. Literally, he's without faith. He might, he might in verse uh, 16, profess to know God, but he really doesn't know God. The, the guy that works with sewage might profess that he doesn't work with sewage, that he's a perfumer or something like that. But you're going to tell he smells like sewage. He doesn't work as a perfumer. He's lying. And the evaluation of that kind of person is nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. He is like the man, what, what we read about in 1 Timothy 4, that his conscience is seared. He has spent so much time in the world. It's like a red hot branding iron over and over and over. The conscience is seared. Everything becomes polluted to that type of person. The truth doesn't work. The truth's not working in him. It's like, look at our culture, right? That's a diagnosis of our culture. Everything you turn on now, right? It's just filled with filth. But, Let's get personal because what we need to ask, we can't just look out there. Does it diagnose you? Is, I think a good way to, uh, to, to identify the pollution, the filth that may be still bubbling in our hearts. What do you laugh at? What do, you and friend, what do you and your friends joke about, talk about? What do you find enjoyment in? That's a good indicator the pollution, of, of the pollution in our hearts. Look, it's simple. If your inside is right, everything else will be right. But if your insides are polluted, everything else becomes polluted. Purity comes only by the finished work of God in Christ in the inner man. 
We need God to clean up our hearts. The truth must work in us first and foremost. When Peter is washing, getting his feet washed in the gospels, I love it. He says, no, Lord, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, I've, I've washed you, Peter, you're clean. Friends, be encouraged tonight that if you are a Christian, if you know the Lord as your savior, that Jesus has indeed washed you. And we can take comfort in that. We can take comfort that the finished work of Jesus has made you pure. So we can ask the question that we asked at the beginning, who can ascend the hill of Yahweh? Who can see him and be with him? But you who have been given a pure heart. That's amazing. The truth works outward as well, though. Verse 16, it works inward, yes, but it works outward. And the first thing we see here in verse 16 is that they claim to know God. They claim to be Christians. They don't know him, but they claim to know him. When we talked about false teachers last week, something we, we had talked about in small groups, one of the gentlemen was like, one of the a gentlemen asked, do these people actually know what they're doing when they're teaching falsely? I think this answers that question. They think they know God. They think they're doing the right thing. But they're so good at deceiving people that they've deceived themselves. They think they know God. But what? Their works deny it. There's a, there's a fundamental difference between what they say and what they do. It's not so much of whether or not you know God, but it is, does God know you? Right? Um, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, what? Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what? But he who does the will of God, the will of my father who is in heaven. You can say, Lord, Lord, all your life. But the la- on that last day, what is God going to say of you? That's the question. I never knew you. Depart from me. Or welcome in. Welcome home, my good and faithful servant. It's like I can say I love my wife, Rebecca, but it's what I do that shows that love, right? Love is just a word. But it's what I do. Am I helping at home? Am I helping her with dishes? Am I helping her with the kids? Am I helping her when I get home from my job? That's what, that's when love is shown. It's proven that way. Right? Our obedience to God's word proves that inward purity. It proves that the truth has worked in us. That's the picture. That's the picture. Now, Paul concludes here with three summary statements of these false teachers. Last week, we saw, again, that they were rebellious. They were empty talkers. They were deceivers. And here, we see that they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Detestable. The word means abominable idolatrous 
God hates idolatry. It was the first commandment that he gave. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet here these people are, they're detestable. They act like they're their own God. They claim to know God, but really all they are their own is their own God. And it's detestable to the true God. It's detestable. They seek to appease God by their man-made religion and rules. Look, when you seek to earn righteousness by what you do and by your own works, you're just bowing down to idols. The idol of self. Every time. Second, we learned that they're disobedient. And it almost seems like, well, that's obvious at this point. But, but I want you to imagine, who likes dogs in here? Do we like dogs? Okay, I, have, I like dogs. I have a dog, and now I have two dogs because out in the country, stray dogs get in your yard. So, literally ripped a hole in my fence. I'm not kidding. So now I have a puppy. So I have two dogs. Very cute puppy, but nonetheless a puppy. And when you're trying to get a dog to do something and it doesn't want to, what does it do? It just plants its paws in the ground and you're dragging it. And it's, it's just, I will not move. I won't. That's the picture of a disobedient man. Disobedient here in the text, it literally means you're, you refuse to be persuaded. You will not move. You're going to have it your way. That's what it means. You're just stubborn. You have to have your sinful way. It's like that dog that won't move. One author said at this point, men do not avoid Christ because of insufficient facts, but because of proud and unrepentant hearts. They are unwilling to be persuaded and are unbelieving and thus are disobedient. It's like in Proverbs 26, 11, the dog returning to its own vomit. It's just, it's just going to do it over and over and over. That's a disobedient man. And finally, because of all of this, he's unfit for any good work. He's useless. He can't be fit for any good work. A man like this, who is rebellious, who is an empty talker, who is the deceiver, who is detestable and disobedient, he's simply unfit. The truth hasn't actually worked in him and it's clearly not working out of him. He denies God by his living. Despite thinking that all his actions, all his man-made religions are what are saving him. Those are the ones that condemn him. Those are the ones that will condemn us and thus repent and trust in Jesus Christ. I mentioned at the beginning, this entire chapter has been dedicated to truth governing the church, right? But now we're going to turn into chapter two. And now we're going to see that the truth doesn't just govern the church. It governs the individual. And that's what chapter two is all about. We see how in chapter two about older men mentoring and instructing younger men, older women instructing younger women. We see what the truth is to do to two employees. 
to the individual. The truth is going to not just, not just govern the church as a whole, but to the individual. That's what we're going to see. And so we read this. But as for you, pause. You should always pause when we read something like that. But it's, we should stop, take a breath, meditate on it. What is he about to say? What did he just say? And what, he is, about, what is he about to say? Paul's contrasting something with what he just finished. He finished talking about false teachers, and now he's going to say something. But as for you, teach the things which are proper for sound doctrine, for healthy doctrine. That's the word, healthy doctrine. Look, I'll be the first to admit, I don't love vegetables, right? I'll be honest, I don't. I'd be fine with just meat and potatoes the rest of my life. But despite, despite my wife's best efforts, I just I, I don't love vegetables. But she, when she scoops them on my plate, she's doing it because she loves me, because she wants me to be healthy, and I need to be a man and an adult and actually eat them, right? Because she loves me, and she wants me to be healthy. And that's the picture here. The faithful shepherd is going to properly feed the sheep with healthy doctrine. That's the idea. Her love ensures my health. The shepherd, the faithful shepherd, loves Christ and loves Christ's bride and will be faithful to feed them healthy doctrine. And this word healthy, this word sound, appears nine times in First and Second Timothy and in Titus. So it's very important to God. Five times it appears in Titus. So healthy doctrine is important to God. It's very important. So, why? Because we just saw that doctrinal error and, li- and, and sinful living go hand in hand. Likewise, sound doctrine and sound living go hand in hand. And l- watch, how, watch how practical Paul gets here. He isn't just telling Titus to teach sound doctrine. He already did that back in chapter 1 verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9 says that the elder, the overseer, must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and reprove. So what's he saying here? Speak sound doctrine. There's a difference. Speak. Apply it to their lives. Speak with them, continually speak with them the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Don't just give them theology, make sure they apply it, practically live it out. It's the difference between this, I'll be honest, by the grace of God, I can come up here and teach you sound doctrine, but it's your small group leaders that are in your life, ensuring you that you live it out. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. You actually look like Christ. You don't just hear all of this stuff. I don't just teach it, but we actually live it. And Paul's telling Titus, make sure they live it. Make sure you're speaking it to them. Get in their life and apply it. It's it's when I when I when I when I studied that this week, it, it reminded me of that. 
brutally convicting passage in James, right? What does it matter if we know that God is one? The demons believe that and shudder is what scripture says. It needs to be more. It needs to be that the truth is actually working outward. It needs to be that we're actually applying the word of God to our lives and we're living it. And which really, again, brings us back to the beginning of Titus. Paul's apostleship, verse 1, was for the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. There it is, back at the beginning, knowing God and godly, living godly. The former must result in the latter. As we close, look, I love you all. And my desire is to see the truth working in you. That's what I want to see. Both in your inner being and in your outer being. Your inner man and your outer man. I want to see you know God and and live godly. I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see the spirit conform you to the image of Christ as he as he promised he would do. And and more than me wanting that, that's, that's what God desires for you. That's what God has promised to do. But I know still that even as Christians, we wrestle every day. I, I say this about the truth working in and the truth working out And our works should show our faith. And yet I know we struggle. I don't give an excuse for the struggle, but I'm, I'm being realistic with you. I know we struggle. Galatians five says that the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. And the result of that, Paul says is we don't do the things we want to do. Oh, we want to do them. You and I, we desperately need the grace of God in this. You need it. I need it. Every person in this building needs it. Every person at this church, every Christian who ever lived, Paul needed it. Titus needed it. We need the grace of God. I know we come into this building at different levels, different stages. We're all weary from battle. We're all weary from the battle. Battle against the devil, the world, your flesh, your own self. But take heart, dear friends. Because your Savior who says, yes, you will have trouble in this world. He is the one that has overcome the world. And he is the one who we just... He is the one who you are inseparably united to. The one who has overcome the world is the one you're united to. And he has indeed promised, as we read earlier, Titus 2.14. He has purified for himself a people who are zealous for good works. 1 Peter 5 after you have suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be the might forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are so good to give us your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word, your truth works in us. It works outside of us, and it's that specific order. It must work in us if it is going to work outside of us. We cannot look at our outside works and pretend that that's what justifies us. But God, may we rest in the work you have done in us, and may it result by your spirit and obedience outside of us. Oh God, give us grace. Cause us, I pray tonight, cause us to not go home in despair, but cause us to long to obey you because you are so good and so wonderful and so beautiful to us, God. Thank you that even now as we read this text, you are the God of all grace, not some grace, but all grace. And you richly pour it out on us in your son. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Thank you.